welcome back. This is a very special crossover edition of Red Sea Roundup and Shoulder to Shoulder. This is a podcast that, the Shoulder to Shoulder is a podcast that is sponsored by Red Sea Radio, and I'm so happy to have my cohort, 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 I like cohort, that. yes, <laughs> it is a cohort, yeah. right, uh, with with me, my, Megan Silas. Megan, so good to be doing this crossover with you today. Hi, Pam. It's so good to be part of it, and uh, it's always fun whenever we get to do the, the podcast together, but when we actually get to do double duty and have a roundup right? episode at the same time, that's fun, and I actually quite enjoy being more the uh, sit back and let you ask the questions okay. and, and totally let you be in charge. So that, that's that's me right now. I'm going to be in the response mode. <laughs> right. Well, I really love doing this just a, a couple of times a year, to, Megan, to let our listeners know about the podcast that Red Sea Radio actually has. The best way to find us or the easiest way for me is through our app. But of course, you can find a shoulder to shoulder, and that's shoulder, the word shoulder, number two word shoulder on any of your favorite podcast platforms, right? Right. So I want to really thank Dennis and the radio station for allowing Megan and I to to do this. It's been wonderful and fun. Right. I have to say, like, you know, I listen to other podcasts on, you know, various outlets and it's always interesting, you know, they're, they're constantly trying to raise money because like, we can't make this podcast without your support. We have, you know, these people to pay and all this sort of thing. And every time I hear someone saying that, I just feel so blessed that we have this opportunity through Red Sea Radio and their absolute beautiful generosity um, to produce this for us. It, it, it makes it possible. Like, right. you know, we just aren't in a place where we're going to be trying to do this huge marketing kind of thing to to try to make money to um, do the podcast in particular. So we're just so blessed. So, right. you know, would ask uh, anyone who's a fan of the podcast to certainly uh, can consider supporting Red Sea Catholic Radio because they do beautiful things right. uh, much beyond this podcast. You can make a donation at www.redsearadio.org. Yeah. Great. So to support us there. So today, Megan, we have a very timely and beautiful um, topic. So why don't you introduce what our topic is going to be today? Well, I, I, you know, approached Pam about doing a podcast on the topic of the papacy in the heart of your everyday lay Catholic. Mm. Um, I found that I had a really profound response to the passing of Pope Benedict XVI. And I'm just going to like claim to call him Pope Benedict XVI instead of Pope Emeritus, because the reality is, is that we always call popes after they've passed Pope exactly. and, and he was a Pope. And and so that's, that's where I'm going with that. And uh, so I, I really felt a strong emotional response uh, with his passing. And for me, there's a lot kind of wrapped up in that, that I feel like we could talk about because I think it's relevant to more than just me. Sure. Um, but I just thought it was an interesting topic because I think it's easy to, you know, look at the Pope as an individual or the papacy as an office in a way that can be sort of less personal to your own heart. And just like, oh, you know, maybe I don't like what this guy's doing or maybe I don't agree with how this person sees the role of Pope or, or whatever. 
But this idea of like, what does the Pope mean to me as a Catholic? And has that changed over the course of, you know, my being a Catholic for, for many, that'll be the, their lifetime. Has that changed over their lifetime? For me, it's, has it changed over, you know, the past, um, what is it, 11 years since is I've been 11? Catholic. Uh, you know, so it's, I think it's a, a timely discussion right. and, and something that uh, is important because it is a distinguishing feature of Catholicism. I mean, it's one of the things that is particularly unique to the Catholic Church, uh, the office of the Pope. Um, we share so much in common with our Orthodox brothers and sisters, but that one thing is really the sticky wicket. Right, right. right. So who was Pope when you became Catholic? Well, it was Pope Benedict the yeah, okay. and I think, and I think so. That's one of the big reasons why I did have such a response to his passing because immediately, what my heart felt was he was my first pope. Mm. But how quickly that went to he was my first spiritual father mm. as pope, right? And so that idea of spiritual fatherhood and what does that mean? to have the Pope as a spiritual father and how do we experience that as Catholics, I think is an interesting question to explore. And it's probably going to be different for different people, you know, and, you know, you can share your own experiences with that as well. But uh, when we're in a place where maybe there's less, um, what's the word I want to use? Unity yes. as it relates to the, the Pope, mm -hmm. um, I think it becomes more and more important to like share our true hearts about what we're feeling and, and how we're experiencing that office and the person in that office as a spiritual father and what Christ intended in giving us a Pope. Right. Well, when I came into the church, it was JP2. <laughs> yeah. So and it was for a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. His reign was so long. Yeah. And I was, I was deeply um, attached. I was so attached to him. Mm -hmm. Just the, the beauty that he was and, and watching, you know, like World Youth Day in Denver and in Mexico and things like that. It was like, wow. I was very profoundly touched by the saintly man. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, of course I had like, I was more like, there's no way someone could be as awesome as him. And who is this Benedict kind of thing? Mm -hmm. But then I came to see the utter beauty. It's like, it's like with our kids, our kids have their own gifts and talents that are all very special and very different, mm -hmm. um, but you love them um, differently, but just as much. Right. And I found that to be a very welcome and, comforting surprise or newness. It was just new mm -hmm. to me when Benedict came along and, and to see that, you know, while JP two is very much a scholar, I think of him more warm and fuzzy where I thought of Benedict is just very cerebral, cerebral and thoughtful and loved his work. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a thing that's really interesting to me because, because I didn't experience JP two as my Pope, um, so I saw him as a figure on the world stage and I recognized his charisma 
But my so, but that was a very superficial, and I didn't really dig into anything that he wrote or anything mm. like that. And so when I came to be a Catholic, and then was living as Pope Benedict as the Pope, and then had these writings of John Paul II, right? Because John Paul II has passed away, and so his his charisma, his personality was not something that I was engaging with, right? I, I really didn't engage with him in his persona and his personality. So my engagement with John Paul II was really much, uh, really in his writings. And I, so at the same time as I was able to read some of John Paul II writings, I actually um, was also able to read Benedict's writings. Mm. And actually for me, St. John Paul II is less accessible and less warm fuzzy than Benedict. His writings. His writings. Yes. In his writings, yeah. because his style of writing is extremely cerebral. It is. Extremely dense. It's the kind of stuff where often you have to read the same paragraph like two or three times to be like, okay, what is he getting at? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, but Benedict, I experienced his writings and his persona simultaneously. And they were so congruous for me mm. like there was a gentleness a quietness a humility with great great depth and it was I, I really as someone who grew up loving C.S. Lewis I was before I went through my little turn of agnosticism I when I was growing up as an evangelical Christian you know, even from a very young age, I read C.S. Lewis on my own, you know, mere Christianity and, and a lot of his uh, apologetic work. And the thing that always um, struck me about C.S. Lewis is how he was able to state very profound concepts very simply and very accessibly to the point where you're like, oh, of course, of course. Mm. And I feel like Benedict had that quality as well, where it was like, there was nothing that he, it didn't seem like there was anything he was trying to prove, anything he was like trying to make of himself. Very much, let's look at Jesus, look at Jesus. You know, I read his um, trilogy on the, Jesus of Nazareth and just the life of Jesus. It was just so beautiful. And one of the things that really affected me also was reading Spirit of the Liturgy and just his love for Christ in the Eucharist and the fact that the mass is such a transcendent thing that has meaning and beauty that is beyond what we can even comprehend, but that our attempts at entering into it should have the utmost reverence and understand and understanding the power of what is taking place. And those things just impacted me so much. And so what I really felt as I was, you know, faced the reality that he was gone was the recognition that to me, he'd been a very good father. Mm. He corrected when he needed correcting. Mm -hmm. He was clear, unambiguous, and faithful to the teachings of the Catholic faith. And unapologetic about them, even while he was 
tenderhearted to those who had not come to the place of consenting to them. Mm-hmm. And I, even though he hadn't been active and public, there was a safety in his being alive. Mm, you know? Interesting. I, I just have to kind of, kind of jet in here just for a second because my experience of his death was quite different than yours. You were joyful? I was joyful. Yeah, that was a lot of the, a lot of my friends felt the same way too. I all of a sudden say, oh, he's relieved of his mortal body. He's going to be in heaven. He'll be able to do so much more good in heaven for the church than he was when he was in his mortal body. That was that was my thir- first thoughts. There was relief for him. I felt a sense of relief for him. Um, I, felt I felt relief that too. for the church yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have that experience with JP too. I, I was very, very sad. You know? mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but yeah. that was, gosh, a while back. Yeah, I think that I I was able to hold both of those things at the same time. But I think that idea of him as a safe harbor, it's very interesting to bring in like some of the psychology of childhood and parenting and attachment theory, which is very much talks about how in your earliest formation, those people who are your caretakers, ideally your parents, what is best for human flourishing is for in those very young stages, those very um, early ages, that your parents would be consistent and they would be reliable Mm -hmm. and loving and the word safe, just a safe place because when they become that safe foundation, then they are a launching pad for you to go out and explore, knowing that you have a safe harbor to come back to. Right, right. Right. And I think Benedict, for me, was that as a pope. Like he was a safe, consistent, clear voice for the church that I didn't have to worry what he was going to say. I didn't have to like, oh my gosh, there's another like interview with Pope Benedict and what's he going to say now that's going to challenge what I thought was true about the Catholic faith, you know, or what's going to make me feel confused or uncertain. Like, and that's the reality that I feel like I live in now with Pope Francis, Mm -hmm. that he hasn't been a safe spiritual father in my life. And so I'm not going to speak to everybody else. This is, I'm really just sharing my own personal feelings about what it is to look to the Pope as a spiritual father, to have had one that was consistent and consoling. And then to, to now not have that. And to, so I think I was like feeling the total loss of that, you know, with the loss of Benedict, um, where now it's only this place of uncertainty as far as what the father's going to say, mm-hmm. right? And so then to function as a Catholic, where you have to kind of shift in a way to, all right, it's not so much what's Peter say, it's, okay, well, what's been the teaching of the magisterium over the ages, You know what I mean? So you kind of lose that personification of fidelity to the, you know, faith handed over 
by the saints. Gotcha. Yeah, but um, I also want to get to like both of our thoughts really on as converts, what the office of the papacy and the whole structure mm-hmm. kind of means to us. And like, what was our process? I mean, did you come in with a like, what's this all about? I'm not so sure about this hierarchy thing or, you know, like our different perspectives on, on what we thought when we started to see the structure with the papacy. Yeah, I am actually in my, you know, I, as you know, Pam, I had a very quick conversion. Like it wasn't like I struggled for, you know, years to try to come to grips with the different teachings. It's in a real profound way, the Holy Spirit kind of revealed a lot of things to me that made me assent to the Catholic faith. And I actually um, came to the understanding of the absolute necessity for the hierarchy and a okay. pope mm. very quickly because um, if anyone who, who has heard my, you know, conversion story um, knows that the thing that the Lord used to bring me into the Catholic faith was the idea of unity, that Christ meant it when he said that he wanted us to be one. And that when he says there is, you know, when his Bible says there should be one baptism, one shepherd, one church, and that. And when Christ prays in John chapter 17, that we may be one so that the world will know that the father sent him this idea that our ability to witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, does depend on our being united in faith, united in truth. And that that only happens among human beings if there is a visible head which can ultimately make the final say about this is the truth that Christ has compelled us to follow. And I think it's so, if you look at how the family structure is set up, the church is basically... You know, this, you know, Red Sea Catholic Radio, we talk about it, which is religious education for the domestic church. It's been the church's understanding that the the family unit is the domestic church, it's the primary unit, and that the broader church is simply the expression of the individual family unit on a broader scale. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is clear that the father is the head of the home and that the wife and the children are meant to be under his headship. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Under his protection. Protection, mm-hmm. but, but his guidance. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, like when you look at scripture, just recently, you know, we've just come out of the Christmas season. And just after we go through the beautiful, you know, stuff of the nativity and, you know, you've got the Magi coming and then, well, what happens right after the Magi? The Lord comes to Joseph and tells him in a dream, you need to leave now. You need to go to Egypt because, you know, your son's life is in danger. And so... As much as we love and honor Mary as the, you know, ultimate in God's creation, and she is Saint, you know, Prima, right? The Lord still acted through what he established as the family, you know, order. Right. 
told Joseph, you take your family and you go. And so I've reflected on that in light of the papacy and understanding that the role of the father is to protect, to guide, to lead to security. And the Lord will use his vicar on earth in that manner for the church. And if that's not happening, the family is in peril. Mm-hmm. If Joseph doesn't play his role as head of the home and say, Mary, let's go, girl. We got to go. The Lord has said to go. Jesus is in danger. Mm-hmm. This is the role of the Pope. To be that spiritual head, in my mind, you know, right. you know to be the father of the church right. because we need a father. Yeah, my my uh, impression was I can't say it as eloquently as you have, Megan, but very similar. <clears throat> I did find comfort in the structure as well. I thought this makes more sense because you know the buck's got to stop somewhere, right? And when you look at the history of the Catholic Church, um, we have so far been spared from you know, radical ideas becoming part of our doctrine because we have such a structure and hierarchy in place to vet this according to the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, Whereas coming from different faiths, there's not a lot of, I don't know if structure is the right word you would say, but uh, for me, I found, and part of my conversion story was, um, in doing research for a college paper, I came across the Catechism of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and the thoughtfulness and of that book, and the, the, the just the ring of truth that was in that. Well, that just doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know. It, mm-hmm. it happened in a structure, and so I guess you know the structure in itself. Again, it's like the borders and the parameters that make us feel safe. You know. Right. And give us then the freedom to explore things like the, the Catholic Church is has absolutely no fear of exploring all kinds of theological concepts and, and digging deep into scripture and try, and coming up with, you know, various interpretations and everything. We can have these discussions. We can have the freedom to, quote unquote, play in the playground mm-hmm. because there's a fence that says, you know, OK, you're. Now you're getting way too close to the edge of what's no longer true. You, we're not going to go there. You, you know, you don't. You're not going there. And I think that um, it's almost like if you look at it in, kind of in the a sense of a relationship, like if you think of it in terms of say a romantic relationship, the difference between a marriage and dating, right? Like when you say. We have a commitment. We have, you know, put this, you know, border around this relationship that says there are things not allowed. There are, you know, and you are have expectations about what is appropriate within that relationship and that, you know, and that to dissolve that relationship would be a huge, deep rupture as opposed to just like, okay, well, I've just decided I'm not interested. Right. And so. That's what we have established in the church where we we have a covenantal relationship in a sense with each other as part of the church. And that to go outside of what the church teaches is a rupture 
Exactly. Right? And so that's a protection against what? Disunity. And mm-hmm. then you see what happens in the unfortunate situations in the in the Protestant denominations that just splinter and splinter and splinter. And what's to stop it? Because if you've got, you know, two groups of people within a denomination or even more than that, who vigorously disagree on an important piece of doctrine if nobody gets the say about who's what's going to be what we follow right there's no other option but to break apart exactly right oh, and divide yeah and divide and then what that does is not only does it hurt people it's painful i have talked to people who have been part of um a, a church that just split just because they, they, whatever the reasons, whether they were doctrinal or whether they were personal, because sometimes it's just pride or disagreements among, about finances, things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And the church just splits and it's like a divorce in a, mm-hmm. in, in a family. Yes. Right. And so the Lord doesn't want that because not only is it hurt hearts, it also significantly diminishes our ability as Christians to be witnesses to non-Christians. Exactly. About who Christ is. Right. Yeah, it's a firm foundation. It's a firm yeah. foundation. Yeah, you sound like Marcus Grody now. He Do wrote, I? Yeah. He wrote a book called Firm Foundation. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so then when we find ourselves in a place where it, the firm, the foundation seems less firm. Right, right. Well, Standing on firm foundation, let's talk about some of our favorite and quite um, amazing papal documents. Because there's several out there that have really touched me deeply and changed me um, from JP2 and Benedict. Mm -hmm. I can honestly say um, through some of the studies that, oh my goodness. um, I would say that my favorite... Document And again, this goes back to the father of the church, the head of the church, really teaching his children and interpreting scripture and the magisterium and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it was on human suffering, on redemptive suffering. Oh, yeah, that's a it's beautiful document. Definitely probably my top mm-hmm. JP2. Yeah. Um, he really taught me, and this is, I'm going to quote a line. I quote this all the time in daily life. Um from that document, and I am paraphrasing to some extent, but he said that that Christ, while his suffering was absolutely complete and redemptive for the whole human race, left enough room for us humans to join him by uniting our sufferings to his mm. to participate in the salvific action. Yeah, and it's just a, such a beautiful understanding of suffering. I, mean, I think... One of the things that after I became Catholic and and went much deeper into this idea of the Catholic understanding of human suffering, it is a theology that is so well um, fleshed out mm-hmm. and so very beautiful and so healing for those who have suffered. It's a whole new world. It's it's beautiful. And I think, unfortunately, like, I think sometimes people get mis. They misinterpret it. They they don't understand it fully because maybe, you know, they grew up in a, you know, a Catholic culture where, you know, you had 
a grandma or whatever, just offer it up, just offer it up, you know, and it's yes and no. Like there's this thing of like, don't dismiss the suffering by being like, it's a good thing that you're suffering because you can offer it up, right? Like this nuanced understanding of is suffering good? Yes and no, Right. right? Does the Lord delight in the suffering of his people? No, a hundred percent. No, he does not delight in their suffering. He does not want suffering. He did not create us for suffering. And yet he is the God that makes all things new. He's the God that brings good out of evil and he brings ultimate good out of ultimate evil. And so he transforms things and it's so beautiful, but I think sometimes Catholics, you know, can get cast as I in fact my husband he was even saying this one time. He's like, You Catholics feel like, you know, you're not good Christians unless you're suffering or something. Yeah. I was like, No, that is a completely that's a wrong headed understanding of what that theology is all about. Yeah. We are good Christians to the extent that we accept with total surrender and peace whatever God brings into our lives and we offer it back to him as a holy sacrifice. Yeah. Right. And so it's not about, Oh, I want to suffer. I want to suffer. So that, because then I can be good. No, Mm -hmm. it's, I want to be united in Christ with Christ in all things. And that includes suffering. What that reminds me of is the beautiful book, the um, abandonment to divine providence Mm -hmm. to start to be able to live in a way that you embrace the eternal now, right? And mm-hmm. what happens to you is either in God's permissive will or holy will, right? Mm-hmm. And that was really transformative for me to understand life is beautiful and he He can make lemonade out of lemons if we just let him and not fight him on it. Right, and it takes a lot of trust, right? Because we're mm-hmm. not always going to see that culmination, Mm -hmm. that good being brought out of evil. We might not see it in this life, but to trust that he is all good, that he is all loving and that he does know better what Mm -hmm. will be good for our lives than, than we do, you know? And I was just pondering something, you know, the other day about my own life that I was like, not ideal. Like I just did it, you know, something, you know, a reality within my life that's been persistent, that's not ideal and wondering like, why is it that, the Lord persists in in the allowing this to be, right? And, you know, I just came to the conclusion, I was like, you know, I have no idea who I would be or what I would look like if that reality had been different. Mm. Like maybe I would be a much more prideful person and much less open to the Lord being a minister to my heart. If I didn't have that circumstance. Right. That reminds me of like you hear oftentimes, you know, this is my story and I'm better for it. Mm -hmm. You know, like we have these trials and tribulations that we go through and you say, I wouldn't be the same person I am today had I not been through those trials Um, because we're always being turned and changed and purified. Purified. Yes. But Benedict, one of his favorite examples or excuse me, his uh, encyclicals. What do you say? I have mine. Do you have yours? Honestly, I, I I am not very good at attaching the authors to, to the encyclicals. Oh, okay. So I, the, the, when you asked what my favorite encyclical was, it's Fides is Ratio, but I don't think that's Benedict. I think that's actually JP2 as well. Is it? Um, but 
faith and reason on, you know, and this idea that um, we don't have to check our brains at the door in order to be believers. Because, you know, I've always been a person who just really liked to kind of dig deep and, and really ponder things and question and challenge. I mean, I love a good argument, mm-hmm. you know, with somebody like I love it when people disagree with me and then vigorously defend their position. And then I learn from them. And and so this idea that we don't have to let the, you know, separate science and faith and philosophy and spirituality like that that this we are all meant we're meant to be totally integrated in all Mm -hmm. these places and what it has really done for me is to be absolutely fearless like i am unafraid of anything Mm -hmm. that people want to bring at me as it relates to science or philosophy or theology because it's like if it's true it's it's of christ and so let's look at whatever together and find out, you know, to the best of our ability through, you know, our reason and the light of the Holy Spirit to determine what's true. And so there's no fear. And I feel like what it does for me is just it makes everything that is true mine. You know, when some I had a Protestant say to me once, well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily talk to you about this because it's you know not part of your of the catholic tradition or whatever and i'm over here like i'm not challenged by anything that's true so if you think something's true bring it to me because i want to know it if it's true and if it's not true maybe i can you know bring you to a place of understanding of why you might want to question it let's have the conversation but i think some people function out of this place of um fear of being challenged or fear that their faith can't withstand arguments against it. And that's no place to live as a Christian. No. You know, but I have to say as, as, as a new Catholic, I was there, like I wanted to really be more immersed in my faith before I went out and tried to defend it. That's for sure. Cause I, I oh, felt of course, a little of course. insecure, even though I knew it to be truth, I didn't have enough knowledge to be mm. able to defend in the way I wanted. But Okay, to answer my own question. Yeah, answer your own question. Uh, what was my favorite Yeah, um, it, of his was absolutely Space Salvi. Oh, Saved yeah. in Hope. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, um, we did actually a book study on it in one of my um, prayer groups. And just, it's like, at the heart of that one is that Christians are a people of hope because Christ is hope. Mm-hmm. So that as long as we have Christ, we have hope to be with him eternally. And I'm paraphrasing, yeah. obviously, but I was just like, wow. And this this really convicted me to be a person of hope and a person of joy. If I am authentically Christian, then I will be that person of hope and joy. Right. And I do think that um, the question of hope really does find its source in trust, Right. Because, you know, I love it when when uh, Paul says, you know, faith, hope and love. These three these three remain. But the greatest is love. And, you know, the reason that the greatest is love is because in the end, actually, even faith and hope will no longer be because once we achieve the beatific vision, we will know 
just as we are fully known, we will know fully just as we are fully known. So when we know fully just as we are fully known and we achieve the hope that we have as Christians, which is to be in the beatific vision, faith and hope are no longer necessary because Mm -hmm. faith and hope require trust. But once we're in that place where we know fully and see him fully, we no longer have to have faith or hope because we have had the realization of our hope and the, and, and the, and the, illustration of what we had faith in right and so hope then love remains but i think as we are prior to that point as we are you know wandering this valley of tears that we have right now where we we must remain in faith and hope if we are to actually love it comes down to trust because how can we hope for something if we do not trust that there is one who can make it come to be you know, and we know how much we are incapable of making real. There's so much beyond our ability. There's so much weakness in us and so much littleness in us and so much that will prevent us from realizing these great, beautiful, existential hopes that we have as human beings that only human beings have mm-hmm. that are our very nature built within us. And it's like, you know, so you know, C.S. Lewis actually talked about this, is that you don't long for something that there's nothing to satisfy it. And our longing for something beyond this world, for the transcendent, has been created in us by God and can only be made manifest in us through God. Yes. Our hopes are, our hearts restless till they rest in him. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think getting back to the the position of the papacy and, and, you know, where we're at, you know, and, and I'll admit, and I have admitted in this that, you know, for, with Pope Francis, I don't feel that safe, secure place mm-hmm. that, um, that safe Harbor of where I just feel completely the trust that he's not going to say something that is, seems contrary to the faith or at least confusing or obscure about, mm. you know, what truth is. How do we function in that place as Catholics? Um, you know, again, I, I can I, speak to how kind of how I've gone about it in a way is, is really the um, God is in control, mm-hmm. abandonment, divine providence. He's allowed this and this Pope for this time for a purpose and a reason and he will make good of all of it and it's that trust again Megan that you're saying I trust God's in control and there are times in the words of my dear friend Donna she would say she'd look at such a mess and say how are you going to get us out of this one Lord and I love that I think that's really very appropriate just that's that's really the trust that we should have right now right and I think it's also really important to remember that no pope will ever live up to what a perfect pope could be because the, really the pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, but he's not Christ right. and he will never be and he never has been. And there'll always be things where places where he'll fall short. And so we, as much as we should, I think as Catholics respect the pope and respect the office and have affection for him and pray for him, pray y'all for him. pray yes. for him, no Amen. matter what you think you, if you're not praying for the pope every day, I think we're falling short as Catholics. We ought to be. Yes, exactly. And so for sure, recognize 
the yeah. limitations of the person in the office and yes. pray and trust in Christ. Yeah, but I want to add in here at the end about shoulder to shoulder. We will be continuing our book. So, yes. Yeah, two more chapters yes, left. Yes, we will on be that getting book. back to that with shoulder to shoulder. But, and if you're Red Sea Roundup listeners, please head on over to your favorite podcast platform for shoulder to shoulder. So, I'm going to say thank you for walking shoulder to shoulder with us today Amen in this crossover. That. And with our Red Sea Roundup listeners, I pray that you might tune into it. It's been a fun conversation. So these are the type of conversations Megan and I have on a regular basis that are hopefully very edifying to the Lord and for you to be a part of our, um, our just love of God. And we usually like to say also at this time, um, again, that I say, go and love your neighbor with the Red Sea Roundup, but it is what? What? Uh, I don't know. The closing for shoulder to shoulder. We usually say, oh, yeah, uh, now I'm just blanking. So yeah, pray for, pray for us. us and we'll pray for you. We'll pray for us and we'll pray for you. And if you ever have any subject items that you would like to add for shoulder to shoulder, we'd be happy to address them Absolutely. at our email. Tell them the email. Uh, I think the easiest way is to message us on Facebook, actually. Message so Facebook, shoulder okay. to shoulder podcast mm-hmm. on Facebook. If you just want to message us there, uh, you know, we keep an eye on that. And uh, that's the best way. Yeah, for sure. So thank you all of you for joining us today on Shoulder to Shoulder and Red Sea Roundup crossover. We're so glad that you did. And until next time, go and love your neighbor. God bless. God bless. Rise again. Rise again.